Well, this is, as you well know, Easter Sunday, the day that we remember the most incredible event the history of the world has ever seen, most amazing and astounding and shocking thing that has ever happened. When God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, vindicating his sacrifice of his life for ours. And when Christ rose to new life on the other side of death, we saw in our text from last week in Romans 6 that he rose to never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Easter is our most glorious holiday as Christians. Even though, as one of my friends put it, it's the little bit harder to explain one of our two big holidays. Christmas has some kind of weird parts to it, but Easter is way weirder. I mean, Easter really pushes the envelope, which is probably why it's not as widely celebrated. I'm talking from an outsider's perspective. It is just weirder, if we're honest. And that's because it's so incredibly amazing. And as you dig into its ramifications, it gets even more weird and even more amazing. And you have to lean into the weirdness to see the amazingness. You know when kids go through that phase when they think that they're too cool for stuff and for everything that's like actually fun and they just like stand aside and cross their arms and, and you kind of pity them because all that they're really doing is wasting times so that they could be having so much fun. And we can sometimes be like that, holding wonderful things about our faith at arm's distance because they aren't cool to sophisticated secular folks. And we've got to seem respectable after all. And, and going on and on about dead people coming back to life doesn't quite fit that bill. But when we do that, we're being like those kids who are just missing out. We need to be like King David who, when chastised for being too carried away by the glory of his God, he said, I'll become even more undignified than this. Because Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning if you think one resurrected person is pushing it on the weird religious side of things, then you're going to have trouble when you realize what exactly it means about everything else. Jesus was just the first among a whole host of brothers to be resurrected. And those of us among that, those brethren will be leading the parade of resurrection for the whole universe. Let's lean in to Easter Let's let it really amaze us. Let's refuse to miss out on being amazed by hope because we're too concerned with being cool and calm and respectable. Respectable religion today sees the resurrection at most as a metaphor for fresh starts. In our world, it's acceptable to acknowledge the tradition of Easter, but it's ridiculous to think about the details too much. Definitely can't insist on them. Well, you can cross your arms in the corner if you want. And I'm going to have some fun. Let's not miss out. Let's dig in. Let's rejoice in hope. Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. We've been reading Romans this last week in our church-wide reading plan called The Fellowship of the Spirit Sword. And today we'll be reading verses 18 through 29 from Romans 8, my favorite chapter of Scripture. So listen close. Romans 8, 18 through 29 says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we are, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So I really want to focus on verse 29 from that long passage this morning where it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so he's talking there, about Jesus, and that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And even though it says firstborn, it's not talking about his birth. It's talking about his resurrection. And we know this from the context. That's why I read that whole section leading up to that verse where Paul uses the metaphor of birth for what God is going to do and bring about in all of creation. He says the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. He says, we groan as we wait for the same. The consummation of our adoption as sons, which is, what do he say? The redemption of our bodies. And this, to say, Jesus' resurrection of his body was just the beginning. Jesus himself talked this way to his disciples when they asked about their hope after giving up everything that they had to follow him. And in Matthew 19, he encouraged them by talking about the new world, as he called it. He said, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, those who have given up anything for him may receive many times more and even eternal life. And where my translation says new world, it's the Greek word palingenesia. And palin means again. And genesia means genesis or birth. He's talking about the world being born again. Jesus' vision of a future resurrection is like birth, which means things will be different and better. I remember years ago when my close friend Brad Lewis was studying to be a paramedic, and he told me about this God magic that happens inside of babies' hearts when they take their first breaths. Before babies are born, they have a hole in their heart. 
between the atriums because their lungs aren't functioning yet, you know, until they go outside and take a breath of fresh air. And so this allows them to pump oxygenated blood from their mom. It's an amazing thing. And when a baby is born and starts to breathe within minutes, that hole seals up like magic. And before, when the baby received its blood through two major arteries from the umbilical cord, now you can just cut those. Brad said, what other major arteries can you just slice and everything's cool? A baby being born is an incredible revolution for a baby. The body changes in ways beyond its control and in order to sustain it in a more enduring way. And this is not even to mention the most obvious things, right? Like using lungs to breathe air and and eyes to see light. And, And if you think about how radical and magical it is, it's astounding. And then we're told this is what needs to happen to all of us and and to all of creation. Just as the baby was cramped in the darkness, yet beloved by parents, we too are cramped in the darkness and beloved by our Father. And we are anticipating the day that we can really see face to face and really breathe and stretch our new legs. And the hole in our hearts is forever sealed. Jesus' grand hope for his disciples is God's mission to radically renew his world through a new birth, which is probably ringing a few bells in your mind from another teaching where Jesus said that people need to be born again. Right? When he was talking with that skeptical religious leader and he said that he needed to be born again in John 3. And in Titus, Paul uses the same word Jesus uses, palingenesia, to talk about what happens to us when we are saved. He says in Titus 3.5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, palingenesia, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so here Paul connects hope of eternal life and the word palingenesia, just like Jesus did. But what's so amazing is that Jesus applied it to this cosmic regeneration of all creation, and Paul applies it to your individual regeneration of your own soul. And I think he intends for us to see the connection. That Jesus' resurrection has opened the floodgates of our hope and has ushered in the new creation. His resurrection is the beginning of what will be. And as we are renewed by his life, we are a part of the remaking of the world. Jesus' understanding of the world and humanity is that even though God made it good, something has gone so fundamentally wrong with it, so devastatingly wrong with it, that it needs to be born again. The whole thing needs a radical renewal. We human beings need to be born again, and the whole universe needs to be born again, and Jesus is going to make that happen. This is our great hope, and this is what he proved when he walked out of that tomb, that he had the power to do what he promised, and that he is going to follow through. He is the foretaste of the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. Revelation 21 gives us a beautiful description and picture of this hope. 
When he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This means that God will not let human evil and spiritual evil and suffering and tragedy get the last word. It means that there is hope for our world hope for the world to be set right and made new. And that is a powerful hope. It's a compelling hope that throughout history has made thousands of Christians live lives in the name of love that has seemed crazy from an outside perspective. Because we are destined for a renewed world. And our aim is to live as ambassadors of that perfect world here in this present, broken, decaying world. And that's ultimately who Jesus is. He is the king of the new creation. And we are his ambassadors in the old. We are his citizens and his kingdom is coming. And we pray daily for his kingdom to come as he taught us. And as we pray, we long to see the fullness of that kingdom. We ache for it. In the book, Every Moment Holy, which is a collection of prayers for everyday situations like home repairs and and drinking of morning coffee, that as the title suggests, every moment can be holy, lived before the face of God, or ought to be, and even our heartaches. And so one of the prayers that I've loved from this collection is for homesickness. In that prayer, it says this, Oh, my soul, have there not always been signs? Oh, my soul, were we not born with hearts on fire before we were old enough even to know why songs and waves and starlight so stirred us? Had we not already tiptoed to the edge of that vast sadness, bright and good, and felt ourselves somehow stricken with a sickness unto life? Hardly had we ventured from our yards when we felt ourselves so strangely far from something and somewhere that we despaired of ever reaching that we turned to hide the welling of our eyes. We knew it even then as the opening of a wound this world cannot repair. The first birthing of that weight every soul must wake up to alone because it is the burden of that wild and lonely space that only God and his eternity can fill. And as we wait, this sacred homesick sorrow works in us to cultivate a faith that knows one day he will. That is the holy work of homesickness to teach our hearts how lonely they have always been for God. So let these sighs and tears, Lord Christ, prepare me for that better gladness that will be mine. Let all your children learn to grieve well in this life, knowing we are not just being homesick. We are letting the sorrow carve the spaces in our souls that joy will one day fill. We are homesick. That prayer says, for the world as it ought to be. For the world as he will remake it through the power that raised Christ from the dead. And whether you're a Christian or not, all of us know what Romans 8 is talking about when it talks about groaning for renewal. 
We all ache for something to change. We feel it deep in our hearts, the brokenness of this world. The reason we feel this way is because this world and humanity as it presently is, is terminally diseased. But we, we don't, what we don't see is how we all contribute to this, this degradation, this destruction. We are major players in the decay, and we're so damaged by it ourselves that we can, can't even see that sometimes. Though if we're honest, sometimes we can see it, can't we? And in those honest moments, the renewal that we long for and that we cry for is not just renewal for the world in general but for our own hearts and minds and bodies. We want to cry with the crowds that cried last Sunday on Palm Sunday as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. And God has heard our cries. And he's answered us with an empty tomb. The empty tomb is like the flowers blooming through the snow that tell us spring is coming. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, early in the book, Narnia is consumed in a seemingly endless winter. A joyless winter. Always winter and never Christmas, as they say. And it's brought on by the evil magic of the White Witch. But the Narnians have a song they sing. A song of hope. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter will meet its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And sure enough, later in the book, they're told Aslan is on the move. And the white witch's power begins to fade. And the snow begins to melt. And the witch's sledge begins to have trouble moving through the snow as she gets furious at the prospect of Aslan's return. And she starts treating her servants more harshly, including among those servants is Edmund, the boy from our world. And Edmund begins to hear a familiar sound that he couldn't quite place at first. A strange, sweet, rustling, chattering noise. And then he did remember what it was. It was the sound of running water. And all around them, though out of sight, were streams chattering, murmuring, bubbling, splashing, and even at a distance, roaring. And his heart gave a great leap, though it says he hardly knew why. And when he realized the frost was over, much nearer there was a drip, drip, drip from the branches and all the trees. And then he looked and he saw a tree with a great load of snow slide off. For the first time since he did Narnia, he saw the dark green of a fir tree. And unless you've looked at a world of snow as long as Edmund had been looking at it, you hardly are able to imagine what a relief those green patches were in that endless white. And one of the witch's dwarves realizes what's going on and he says, this isn't just a thaw, this is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed, I tell you. This is Aslan's doing. And the empty tomb is like that sound of running water and those patches of green. The resurrection is the beginning of the cosmic spring that is to come. And when we trudge through the winter, we listen for the running water and we look for the patches of green and we rejoice in hope for Christ is on the move and he's on the move through us 
through his church, through his gospel. And we, sh- we share in what he has done and in what he is doing because we share in his resurrection life. That's what this text says, that we are being conformed to his image. The image of God's son, meaning Christ Jesus. And this too hints at resurrection and rebirth, doesn't it? A renewal of what we were meant to be because what were we made in the beginning? How were we made? How does Genesis say it? It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God. And an image of someone is meant to glorify that person like a, a statue of a great man. And we have marred that glory by vandalizing the image, preferring to remake it as we want it to be. Which makes our lives lies. We live a lie when we live in a way that God would not live, right? I mean, if we are images of him, then we are to reflect him and what he is like. Like if you made a statue of Martin Luther King Jr. whipping a slave, that statue would be a lie. And you, as a living image of God, if you live in a way that doesn't reflect God, you become a living lie. Amen. But Christ lived as a perfect image of God. Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said, those who have seen me have seen the Father. He reflected the glory and goodness of his Father completely and perfectly. And in his resurrection, he reversed the curse of sin and death and has perfected and glorified the image of God. And God, in uniting us with his Son through our faith and by his grace, he conforms us to that image renewing mankind into, into uh, what he made them to be, his image, remaking us in the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing about this passage is that it so succinctly points us to this astounding paradox about Christ, which is his simultaneous unity with us and his transcendence above us. It says that he's the firstborn among many brothers, We become his brothers. An awesome thought. Christ is our elder brother. We are one with him and we are conformed to his image. And we're not just brothers by legal status of adoption, though that's true and amazing. We are actually grafted in to share his likeness. We are brothers with the Son of God, making us sons of God. But that title, firstborn, is speaking of his unique and glorious position among us that though he is our brother, he is the firstborn. And and this is a higher title than you might first think. Like in Psalm 89, it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. It's a title of grandeur. This is another reason why I know this text is talking about the resurrection because in a few other places in the New Testament, when it calls Christ the firstborn, it calls him the firstborn from the dead. And like in Colossians 1, it says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And I just love everything about that verse. He is the beginning He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. 
His resurrection was the beginning. And his title as firstborn is a title of preeminence. And so we see this combination of his oneness with us and his difference from us. One with us as we are conformed to his image and made to be his brothers and, and different from us in being the firstborn in the full sense of that word, like the highest of the kings of earth, as Psalm 89 said, and preeminent in everything, as Colossians said. He is our elder brother who is one with us and yet infinitely greater than us. And this is the uniqueness of our God and King. I want to talk about the implications of either side of that twofold truth. So first, that he is our brother. And Paul makes it clear in, in Romans 8, earlier in this chapter, that our brotherhood with Christ means that we are co-heirs with Christ. That he, as the Son of God, is the rightful heir to all things. And we share in his inheritance when we are adopted into God's family through Christ. Verses 15 through 17 says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is a breathtaking promise for us broken sinners. Us frail, failing, ignorant, lowly human beings. We are fellow heirs with the Son of God. Because through him we have the spirit of adoption. God's estate that we inherit through Jesus is everything that he has made, which is everything that exists or will exist. This is over-the-top generosity. This is not how we forgive people, is it? When we forgive people, we say, I've forgiven them. I just don't want anything to do with them. But when God forgives, he picks us up in his arms and unites us in an everlasting covenant with his own only son and welcomes us into his own and lavishes us with all that he has and all that he is forever. This is the kind of weight and wonder that can make a person humble under the unbelievable undeservedness of it. And can make us joyful in unspeakable gratitude at the glorious generosity of it. This is who we will become when we grasp these truths. Humble and joyful. And if you aren't humbled by it and made joyful by it, then you don't really understand it. But I only read the... For the half of the verse 17, the second half says, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. We suffer with Christ and we are glorified with Christ. Have you ever thought about being glorified with Christ? And the next verse is one of my favorites. He says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with that glory that is to be revealed to us. And this is the Apostle Paul. He is a man acquainted with sorrows. He's not speaking glibly or lightly or dismissively about sufferings. He knows how heavy they can be. But he also knows that the glory that is to be revealed to us is of such immeasurable greatness that even the most terrible of our sufferings of this present time are like the fire on a Molotov cocktail as it's thrown into the sea. 
You throw that cocktail somewhere else and it's catastrophic. But you throw it into the sea and not only will the fire be quenched, but the bottle's explosive contents will be replaced with the sea itself. We will be heirs to the glory of Christ, glorified with him, which is what the verse that we've been studying says in a slightly different way, that our destiny is to be conformed to the image of him. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity that he will make the feeblest and filthiest among us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Many of us may not have this high of hopes for ourselves. We just want to be a little happier. We don't hope for glory. We just want to be not quite so terrified of death. But God has better plans for you than you do. God has bigger dreams and greater ambitions. And for those of us who have surrendered our souls to him, we are given over to his workmanship. And he will make you complete and perfect and renewed and holy as he is holy. He will conform you to the image of his perfect son through whom the world was made and saved. This being conformed to his image will not be completed in this life because death is an important part of the process. But it does begin here. And we see the beginnings of the revolution in our souls, don't we? these sprouts of love and joy and peace that come almost as a surprise to us. And we can almost do the math and see what a world of glory we are in for if we can add it all up and multiply it by a bunch. We have tasted of true fellowship and love here now and again, haven't we? We've experienced peace the peace of faith, and the joy of salvation. We have known in part the sweetness of self-forgetfulness. And we have had moments of beauty so grand that we wanted to pause time and almost ache to be a part of it somehow. And we take all these and we add them up and we see that they're pointing somewhere to the way things ought to be. And, And we know that it's pointing to the way things will be. And we can't quite, but we can almost imagine a world of perfect love and perfect peace and perfect joy and perfect selflessness and perfect beauty. But we must be perfected for such a perfect world to exist. And this is who Christ is for us the perfect one who has redeemed us from our imperfection. He died not because he had to like us, but because he was taking our death and the consequences of our sin. The only soul big enough to bear it all. And when he came through death to a victorious life, we are invited into that life. That we are being conformed to his image through faith. And this is the hope Easter offers us. But the emphasis of the passage is not really on us. 
It says that our salvation is not primarily about us. It says that our salvation is so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And remember, that title of firstborn is a title of preeminence and glory. This is about him. This is how John talks about uh, Christ as the firstborn in Revelation. He says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, to whom, uh, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God and, and uh to God his, and his and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now that passage is, is rich and dense and it's full of wonderful things. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. And as such, he's the ruler over every king. And this one has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests. So to him be glory and dominion forever. So our hope being centered on Christ may not strike you at first glance at being great news. I'm, I, know, I know you guys, and we all want a hope that's centered on us. What am I going to get, right? What, what about me? So by me saying it's not really about you so much, it's about Christ, might seem a little bit of a letdown. But trust me, this is really good news. Have you ever wondered why we love looking up to people? Why we wear jerseys with other people's names on them? Why we pay so close attention to the lives of strangers who have a bunch of followers on whatever platform. Why whole industries can be sustained by our fascination with stars. Why there's 26 biographies written of Church, Winston Churchill published during his life and then another 36 published between the time he died and the, beginning of the, uh, and the end of the 20th century. And that's just counting the ones written in English. And how it seems like Steve Jobs is on track to catch up with him. There's nothing so human, it seems, than to look up to other humans. Either in fascination or in admiration. Nothing so enjoyable and engaging and inspiring. Many of us come to make it a part of our identity. I once heard a young man half-joking say, as he anticipated the release of a, his, of a CD from his favorite band, he can't wait to download the next installment of his personality. We make the people we admire a part of us. And don't you wonder why? For a race that's so clearly self-absorbed most of the time, it seems strange that we make so much room in our lives for these people. It's because this is what we were made for. We were made to identify with and admire a person. A person to adore and learn about and imitate and cheer on. It seems to fulfill such a deep need in us because we have such a deep need in us. Put there by God. But it's meant for a perfect person. A person who actually deserves it. One who has never been a living lie but is the living truth and will never let us down. A person of such grandeur and glory and goodness and greatness that we can drink it in and actually be lastingly satisfied. A person who actually knows we exist, unlike so many of the people we idolize. Someone who cares for us in return. We were made for him. 
And when you idolize the one you're meant for, it's not called idolizing, it's called worship. We were made for worship, and we only feel truly alive when we're worshiping, and we, are only, we only are truly alive when we're worshiping the source of eternal life. So the preeminence of the risen Christ is good news. It's good news because our hope is in a kingdom where the glory of the firstborn of the dead can be fully and completely worshipped. Fulfilling our deepest longings for, for identity. Satisfying our cravings to be a part of what we find most wonderful and inspiring and encouraging and exciting. To be freed from the shackles of self-exaltation. And liberated into perfect love and awe and wonder. And this is the hope of Easter. The glory of the victorious king who conquered death. And this is the invitation and the call of Easter as well. To come to this king who is worthy of your admiration and of your worship. And so if you've uncrossed your arms a bit and started to join in in the fun, if you've managed to cut the pitiable cool kid act and indulge in some of this outrageous hope that we've been talking about, then it leads to a question. On Monday Thursday this week, we remembered and celebrated the incredible gifts that Jesus gives us. His own joy, his own peace. Before he was put to death, he told his disciples that he wanted to give them his peace and give them his joy. And these he offers us through his spirit. And then on Good Friday, we remembered and celebrated the incredible gift that he gave us of his own life. Dying in our place on the cross, bearing the penalty of our sin. And Pastor Tim and I have thought that in light of reflecting on the wonderful gifts that he gives us, and the incredible sacrifice that he gave for us. An appropriate question to ask is what will you give to him? And I can tell you what he doesn't want. He doesn't want a compromise where we still keep letting our mind and heart go their own way. Centered on self and the world and trying in spite of this to behave honestly and reverently. He doesn't want just surface treatment. He doesn't want dyed Easter eggs. He wants to hatch birds. And you can have a beautifully decorated shell, but you've got to hatch or rot. Those are the two options. And he means for us to hatch and one day be soaring with him on the wind. And the difference is as vast as a rotten egg and a soaring eagle. And this is what he will make of us. But it means we've got to give him more than just our shell. He wants all of you. All your hopes and dreams for he has better ones to give you. Christ says, I don't want just some of what you have to offer. I want you. No half measures are any good. Surrender yourself. All the desires you think are good as well as the ones you think are bad. All of it. And I will give you a new self conformed to myself, he says. And he has shown you how, how generous he is and what he's given to you and what he offers you. He's shown you how good he is. He's shown you how powerful he is. He's given himself 
for you. Give yourself to him in faith. Hope in him. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for sending your son to die for us and for raising him from the dead as our living hope. I pray that you would humble us to receive all that you have for us, that you would make us abound in hope through your spirit. And that we would be filled with joy and peace as we believe. And we pray this with our risen Lord Jesus. Amen.